not only thankful to be with you, but the truth is I'd be thankful to be anywhere today. I'm tired of worshiping, worshiping, oh boy, that sounds bad. I'm tired of being at home alone, not with other people worshiping. Sounds bad to be tired of worshiping at home, doesn't it? Um, for the last few months, like you, I have uh, been in my living room. Most of the time, I uh, was fortunate to be at a drive-in church a few weeks ago with uh, my in-laws in Lebanon and even a few weeks before that, we were in uh, the Joplin area where the churches had already opened up. But most of the time, it's just me and my wife and my daughter. Occasionally, my kids come to visit, and, uh, and they're all tired of me singing with them, so I know they're glad I'm here today. Um, but I'm glad to be this church. This church means an awful lot to me and to our ministry. And... Um, some of you would know that if you've known me for a while, and others, uh, I get to tell that uh, story too. But this church, 52 years ago, uh, gave up maybe the best evangelist that I've ever heard in my lifetime so he could go to the University of Missouri and start the Christian Campus House. And uh, so we've had that relationship for a long time. Uh, and then I've had the joy of filling in for quite a, a long period of time when one of your preachers had passed away unexpectedly, uh, a lot of weddings here, uh, a couple funerals, and uh, some of the most wonderful students in the world have come from this congregation, people that I, I love dearly. So this church means an awful lot to me, and I'm grateful to be with you today. And we're going to be talking about the, uh, the subject of unity and uh, also with spiritual gifts. And in the study that you've been going through of uh, the core teachings of the church, um, at the beginning it's very important in those studies that you believe what's true and you find out at the latter part of this, uh, this series whether what you have studied to be true has really made a difference because it comes out in the actions of the congregation and the, uh, the life of the congregation. So we're talking about unity today, but first a, uh, a diversion. You probably are with me in recognizing that the world is changing rapidly. The world's in trouble, I, I believe. And uh, I know you know this, and I hate to ruin your otherwise excellent morning by bringing back this sobering realization, but to be honest with each other, uh, and to say it up front, I, I believe the world is in trouble. That is indeed bad news. Now, there's good news, because if you read the Bible, you know how the story ends. But between now and then, we've got some issues that we have to deal with. And think about for just a moment, outside of God, what parts of your world do you feel good about right now? You feel good about the economy? Four months ago, I don't know that anyone would have complained, but now there's a lot of question marks. A lot of question marks that, uh, that prompt people to buy gold and store food and, and find the heirloom seeds that you might need to grow someday after the, uh, the nuclear bomb has fallen. Uh, the national debt's an issue, the pandemic is such an issue, and yet we've hardly talked about it the last week and a half because there are bigger issues now. Can you imagine that? Bigger issues than a pandemic. 
and I was driving down this morning, and there was a, a, a news station I was listening to. I'm old enough that I listen to more news than music now, and uh, they were talking about the list of the, the week's biggest news uh, events, and number nine was the pandemic, all the way down at the bottom. Uh, but it's still a big deal. People in parts of the world are still concerned about that. And then national politics, do you feel good about that? Do you feel good about what's happened racially in our country? Uh, world politics, crime, I mean, we could go on and on. And the world outside of these walls is in trouble. The world outside of the church. I'm not a prophet. I'm not one who would claim to be wise about end-time events or even educated about uh, what's going on in the world today. Like you, I see, I listen, I feel, and it all seems to point us in the same direction that we're in trouble. And I don't know that it should be unexpected. The farther we have moved from being a nation that moves and operates according to God's law, uh, this is going to happen. The more Christians are marginalized and their voices are silenced and the church fails to be the church, this probably is to be expected, but many factors have contributed to where we are. And a lot of them are diabolical. A lot of them are demonic. But the biggest issue, I think, has to do with we're not the people of God as this nation once was. So we're going to have to get back there. But the good news is we know how the story ends, right? We've read the end of the book. We know that God and his people are victorious. We know that we uh, who overcome will be with Jesus forever, ever. In a place, the book of Revelation says, where the tabernacle of God is among men, he will dwell among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death or crying or mourning or pain. The first things have passed away. And that's what we look forward to. That's what keeps us going each day in preparation for that grand and glorious day. But until then, until then, what does it look like to be a Christian in an ungodly world. To be in Christ means to be an heir of the promises of God and not just the people looking forward to that future place, but the promises of God here on earth. And fortunately for the whole world, the church is the model of what heaven will be like someday. Aren't they fortunate to know that in the church, we always get along? We always love one another. We always work together, always. We're just one big happy family, right? Jesus' longest conversation that we have in the scriptures recorded, uh, the conversation he had in the days right before his departure, right before in the hours before his departure. It's called the farewell discourse. John 13 through 17 uh, gives us a glimpse of what was most important on the heart of God as he was preparing to leave the world. And uh, last words often reflect those deep thoughts of the heart. 
Maybe you've been with people as they gave their last words and you understood what, uh, what they were leaving behind and the burdens they were leaving behind. And so it is with Jesus. In just a matter of hours after uh, this conversation, Jesus will be arrested, tried, sentenced, crucified. It's all about to happen. God, uh, the man, is about to become the savior of the world. And he shares these last words of what's most important to him. And he calls his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. They've done that before. Three times before they had celebrated. They will share a meal as they always had. And in this meal, Jesus will use the elements that are there, the bread and the, the cup, to explain that his body is about to be broken. And uh, as they were so many times, the disciples are not dialed into what he's saying. They've missed the other clues, and they haven't even been cryptic. They were very clear when he told them what was going to happen. He will wash their feet, giving them, them an example that they should follow, he says. In these last moments with the disciples before his death, there's not much unity in the room. You see, Judas has already conspired to betray Jesus. That is already in motion. In fact, Jesus will dismiss him during this meal to go and do what he has to do. Peter will, during this meal, swear that he will never leave Jesus. And Jesus will set him straight on that. It's going to happen. And remember, I told you so, when it happens, Peter. Not only that, but the disciples return to an argument they've had time and time again. They've had, uh, at least on two other occasions, this argument about who would be the greatest. Can you imagine being with Jesus on the last night of his time on earth? He's poured three years into you, giving you a picture of what a servant looks like. And these guys will waste moments arguing about who is the greatest. Fortunately, like Jesus, like, like us, Jesus knows the end of the story. He knew that these 11 flawed and weak individuals would become the church that would break down the Roman Empire and that would change the world. These followers of Jesus would, like their teacher, give their lives for the people that Christ was going to die for, and they would go to places in the world where never, ever would they have gone had they guessed, just stayed with Jesus, listening to him, following him, uh, happy to, uh, to be hearing sermons and seeing miracles, they will go to places to serve people that they did not yet know Jesus was dying for. And so, in this last discourse, these last words before he will die, Jesus shares what's on his mind. And here's what he says. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And that was a different kind of love he was calling them to. Nothing on earth looked like what he had been doing to the people of earth. He said, keep your mind on my father's house and, and I'm going to prepare a place for you and, and you know where I'm going. 
Keep your mind on that because between now and then, you will have to have moments in this difficult world that you look up to see where you're going to when you'd like to be away from what's going on. He will say to them, do the works that you've seen me do. He will say to them, show me that you love me by keeping my commandments. He will say, keep my words. He will say, keep my peace, my peace that I leave you. It's not the peace that the world knows. It's the peace that only people who know me could ever experience. He will tell them, rejoice that I'm going to the Father. And how odd that must have been to them to think back after his death. Did he actually say, be glad that I'm leaving? What could possibly be better than having Jesus with you? And of course, they didn't yet know or understand the Holy Spirit. He will say, as he continues, abide in me. Love one another as I have loved you. Bear fruit. Don't be surprised, disciples, when the world hates you. Welcome to the club, he says, because they will hate you on, the, on account of the fact that they hated me. You're no longer in the world. You've been called out, and they won't understand that. Jesus will speak to them in depth about the Holy Spirit, and then he will pray for them. But it's in their company that he will talk to the Father, not only about them, but about you and I. I do not ask for these only, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Did you catch that? The way the world would believe that Jesus had been sent by God was if the followers kept unity. What does that mean with regards to unity? The only way the world sees Jesus is if the disciples remain united. United not only in relationship, but more so united in the, the ministry that they will do for the world. They weren't going to preach about unity. They're not told by Jesus to go out and have evangelistic services about unity. They're not told to write books about unity. They're not forming committees about unity. They're going to go out and demonstrate it and not even together. They had done that earlier as he sent them out as the 12 and later as the 72. But now they will be scattered and they will go different directions to places in the world to show what unity looks like. And that unity that Jesus had in mind was very specific. And it would be extremely hard, but it wasn't complicated. It's hard because the audiences that Jesus would send his disciples to were not alike, all different people. They were different because they were young and old. And they would have different interests, different passions. They would have different dreams. And some, uh, some of the, the people hearing those dreams, uh, those, those words of Jesus had dreams that were not rooted in him. 
and they needed to listen to the older and some older people had stopped dreaming and they need to borrow from the younger people. And, and it was such a different crowd, but they all heard the same words. And they were all called to the same thing. It was different because men and women were both in the audience hearing Jesus' words as repeated by the disciples, and they would have different interests as well. It was different because to the people of the world, representing different races, different ethnicities, Jesus' words would speak to each of them, and they would have to hear them as Jesus speaking to them, not the 12 Hebrew uh, uh disciples. They would go to cultures that were vastly, vastly different from the ones delivering the message and to places where Jesus was welcome and also to places where he would be persecuted. It would not be easy because every person was different. Every person had a unique personality. Everyone had different goals. Everyone had different opinions. Some had strong, strong preferences. And they would all be hearing the same word from the same book. Consider this congregation. The ones that were here before you this morning, you now, the ones at home listening, in a lot of ways were very similar. Being from the same place, uh, we have a lot of similar ideas, but we're not exact. But we're more like each other than we are people hearing Jesus' words this morning who would be in China or Venezuela or South Africa or the Ukraine. And even though we're more alike than different, it's still hard for us to keep unity. It's so hard, in fact, that the little church of Jesus' upper room today has become thousands of thousands of thousand churches across the world. And sadly, they represent thousands of denominations and differences. Where's the unity? Some have come to the conclusion that being separate is better than being together. And so they don't worship with anyone, even though they believe. Unity is hard. It's so hard that it's the most important thing on Jesus's mind as he prepares to leave the world. It's hard, but it's not complicated. And what's the solution? Jesus told his disciples, and he's telling us, do my work. Do my work. Remember my words. Do my work, remember my words. We'll talk about those words next week when we look at scripture, but the work that Jesus has left us to do is part of the equation that leads to unity. Jesus' work can only be accomplished through the people of Christ, by his design. The people of Christ doing the work of Christ, but it's people, plural. Not any one of us can do all that Jesus did while he was on earth, and none of us alone can represent the unity that points people uh, to the Father. The work of Christ can be accomplished in us as a group. Each of us has been given a part of what Jesus left to, us to do in order to do the work that must be done, and, and we're not all quip, equipped, we're not all called, we're not all gifted to do the same thing, but I think that's by his design. 
We not only have been created to give what others need, but to receive what they give. And in an amazing way, picture Jesus breaking that bread that he said was his body. Picture the disciples tearing off a piece of it, each becoming a small part of that body. And imagine that our work for the Lord, our uh, gifts and talents, begin to put that loaf back together again. As we serve Jesus. In the list of specific gifts that are given in the New Testament, they come from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Ephesians 4. The lists are helpful. I don't think they're exhaustive because they're not the same list in, in each place, but they remind us that the body looks different by God's design. You all have been gifted or created with the ability or the passion to do something that needs to be done that won't be done unless you do your part. And in Ephesians 4, we find that God's created a family whose different parts together complete the family. And so it is in this congregation and every congregation. In, a, in 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle speaks about the human body being a metaphor for the, uh, the body of Christ on earth. And we're not all the same uh, organ or we're not all the same, uh, same part of the body. Imagine how hideous that would be. But we all have different roles that are supposed to work together. And when they don't work together, there's a disability in the church that keeps it from doing all that it would be uh, able to accomplish otherwise. Our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our passions, our dreams are all for the purpose of bringing glory to him. And we use what we've been given to us in order to do his work and not our own. It was for his glory, not our ego, that we were given gifts to build his church, not our own, to call people to believe in him and not us, to promote the Savior and not ourselves. Some of the gifts that uh, the body has been given are obvious, and you see those often. When Chris speaks, you know he's a gifted speaker, and you know that he has a passion for the Word of God, the things of God, and, and not just that, not just the knowing, but for sharing. He wants you to see God in the Scriptures. When Michael leads us before the throne of God with the other uh, vocalists and musicians, he's doing something that is his gift to us. He's walking us before the throne of God, up the steps, into the temple, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, so that we will have fellowship with our Savior. You have elders in this church that are called to lead and equipped to do so. Teachers that are gifted to teach and uh, passionate evangelists uh, in this church who can't help but tell about Jesus to co-workers and to uh, neighbors. There are people in this church who are generous givers, that God has given you the opportunity out of your means to support the work of God. And there are mercy givers in this church, lots of different gifts that God has given, but when they're not used, there's not unity. Everything God needs to build a church that points people to the world is in this room. 
And yet, the world's not always being pointed to Jesus. Why not? Well, sometimes it's because we don't all use our gifts. You might not even know your gift. That's a, that's a real thing. I would uh, encourage you to ask people that you care about a lot. What do you see my gifts? People often can, uh, can point them out uh, even more clearly than you can see or, or identify them. Sometimes we know our gifts, but we're too shy to use them. We think that other people can do what we would do better. And sometimes we're content to let other people do their thing while we simply observe. And something happens when we're in that situation. I've been uh, at home church long enough to uh, the last few months to know that I can pr pretty quickly identify which church has given thought to the background behind the, uh, the camera or whose camera work is, uh, is superb and whose isn't, who was prepared, who wasn't or speakers that are maybe more prepared than other speakers. And the truth is, I've become a spectator of what God is doing. And when I'm only a spectator, not a participant, I tend to become a critic and a judge. And that's not healthy at all. But when I'm involved, serving with brothers and sisters, we're doing the work together, and I know their heart, they know my heart, we all know we're trying I see them differently even when things don't work out the way that we all had intended. It makes a difference if you're involved. Another reason why the work of the church does not unify us is because we sometimes would rather have gifts that other people have. Can you imagine everyone wanting to be on stage on Sunday morning and preach? I had a wedding a few weeks ago where had to be downsized because of regulations in Columbia. There were, I think, uh, a total of 16 bridesmaids and groomsmen, five people watching the wedding, two, two sets of parents and a grandparent. How about that? They got along wonderfully because they were all involved in the wedding. That's the way the church should be, though. All participants, not spectators. But sometimes we don't participate because we would rather do what someone else is doing. And uh, what if we all wanted to preach? What if we all wanted to lead music? What if we all wanted uh, uh, to do something rather than the thing that God called us to? And there were already people God had called to do the other things. It would leave a gap between what needed to be done and what was being done. A third reason is that we get so distracted that we don't even care about the work of God. Some of the distractions are innocent, jobs that get busy, times of life that become full, but some of them are simply we choose other things other than God. And when that happens, the church misses out on the parts that they need to help do what Christ has left to do. The church is united when the people of God do the work of God for the glory of God. And there's only two reasons why I think he would have left anything for us to do at all. I've often thought it would be easier just to do it himself. 
You and I as parents might know that, that it's a whole lot easier just to do what you want your kids to do than to ask or beg or coach or redo what they've done. But that's only for a short time. Eventually they figure it out. So why would he need us, ask us to do anything? Two reasons why. One is that our work on earth is a preparation for heaven. I don't know what we will do in heaven. I've gladly given up the idea that I'll have little wings and play a harp. Um, I think we'll do what we were created to do here on earth, but maybe didn't know. That our greatest passions will be used in heaven to minister to other people. Imagine finally discovering what you were created for and being able to do that the rest of your life and rest of eternity for other people. So this is preparation for heaven. And, and the truth is much of what we do on earth as the body of Christ is preparation for heaven in some form or other. But here's the other reason. The other reason is that the people in the world who don't know Christ need to see the people of God loving Christ enough that they do whatever is needed for each other. But when that doesn't happen, the world doesn't see Jesus. I, uh, I had a strange experience a year, a little over a year ago. I was coming back from a mission trip. Uh, I had boarded a plane in St. Louis, flew to Fort Lauderdale, uh, from there to Barbados. Um, work was done, was coming home, and um, got back on the airplane in, uh, in Barbados each time, went through the, the security checkpoints, got to Trinidad. We weren't even supposed to get off a plane, but we got off a plane went through the checkpoint again, only supposedly to get back on the plane. And that checkpoint revealed that I had a bullet in my backpack. And it had gone through all the other checkpoints. No one saw it or didn't care. And there are bullets and, and, uh, and there are bullets. This was a 22 shell. It was curled up under my, uh, the hem of my backpack no one had found it, no one had seen it, but they found it in Trinidad. And uh, that set into motion uh, an awful week, uh, weekend. Um, the airport security surrounded me. Uh, my wife and I were getting ready to uh, get back on the plane to go back home, but they detained us, we missed our plane. Uh, eventually, um, they. We took her to a hotel, and then I was booked into a medium security prison. And, you know, you, uh, you would like to think that a preacher who's been working for uh, the Lord's service for 32 years would look at that situation and think, okay, God, what do you need me to do? But in that moment, I, I kind of became overwhelmed um, more so about what was going to happen to my wife, because I wasn't going to be in charge of all those details. Uh, but I eventually am taken to a police station, handcuffed, taken by a car to a medium security prison, 
walked in and there's probably 15 different rooms uh, all in a row. I can't see who the people are in the other rooms, but they put me in a room with uh, four men I find out later who are from Thailand. And when I walk into the room, the oldest of the four is on the, the floor writhing in pain. And he has what looks to me to be a displaced rib or some kind of uh, uh, a problem that is, is causing his stomach to, uh, to protrude. But I didn't know anything about medicine, but I knew enough to pray for him. So I asked the others if I could do that. And um, I knelt down and prayed for him. Uh, the hours go by, no word from anyone. Uh, eventually, make a long story short, an attorney comes, and I've got to go to court the next day, uh, which is Monday. And um, on my way out, two neat things happen. One, that the, the guys from Thailand offer me money. They had a stack of $100 bills in the prison cell. And uh, I couldn't take it. I, I wouldn't take it. But uh, um, our time together, not able to speak any language at all, had caused them to want to do something for me. And uh, the other thing that happened when I got to the jail under the courtroom was, uh, was a, a jail I was put in. I was the only white person in there among 40 people. Uh, but a guy uh, said, you're a man of God, aren't you? And I said, yeah, uh, I'm a minister. He said, let's pray together. And uh, in a group there, we all prayed together. And one by one, everybody left. I was the last to, to get out that morning and, uh, and find eventually got to leave the next day. But it reminded me of something very important, that the worst of situations often create the greatest of opportunities for God's people if they'll simply do all they know to do. I didn't know what was wrong with the man, but I could pray. And another guy in the, in the jail didn't know what I was even in for, but he knew we could pray. When God's people do what God has called them to do, the world changes. The world sees Jesus. And when the world sees Jesus clearly, they never see themselves the same way again. He's our only hope. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for time to be with your church. Those watching at home and those who have been here this morning are people who reflect your son. You've given life to them, Father. You've given uh, your spirit so that we can maintain a witness to the world that you were sent by God. Help us to do that. By your power, for your glory, help us, Father, to live lives that disappear like Jesus' did disappear into the needs of the world and the people of the world so that God may be seen clearly. Bless this church, Father. May your light shine brightly in the world and help, us all, help all of us to look forward to the great and glorious return of your Son. In Christ we pray. Amen.